0: Okay, let me offer a, b- a brief introduction this afternoon. As you know, many of you I have seen each week this semester, we started this lecture series. We called it University Lecture Series, and we have explored connections between faith and learning across a variety of academic disciplines at a time that is a sort of different, new, unusual time here at Sanford, three o'clock on a Wednesday. And I'm pleased to say that what what is probably the most beautiful weather we've had in weeks, you are in this room instead of out on the quad enjoying the sunshine. So thank you for your commitment to intellectual rigor. Let me introduce today's lecture. We are fortunate to have this afternoon Dr. Jason Wallace he is the Richard Stockham, Jr. Chair of Western Intellectual History here at Sanford, and he directs the Core Texts Program, what many of you refer to as CP. You've probably seen Dr. Wallace here because he has introduced many of our Core Text lecturers throughout the course of the semester. He is the author of a recent book entitled Catholic's Slave Holders and the Dilemma of American Evangelicalism from 1835 to 1860, which was published in 2010. And his area of expertise is in European and American religious history. He has a Bachelor of Arts from Auburn University, his MDiv, Master of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, and his PhD from the University of Virginia. And in addition to those things, let me say he has been a trusted colleague who I have found immensely cooperative as we have worked together on many joint endeavors, lectures, guests, and really promoting the Christian components of the Western intellectual history both in a curricular and a co-curricular way. So I appreciate Dr. Wallace for that. Please welcome Dr. Jason Wallace as he comes to lecture.
1: Can you hear me? Is that, is that live? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Matt, uh, and thank you for coming out on a really pretty day. This will be very much worth your time. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> What's the difference between a park bench and an English major? A park bench can support a family of four. Thank you. <laughs> What's the difference between a philosopher and a pharmacist? About $100,000 a year. What's the difference between a Jehovah's Witness and a history major? The Jehovah's Witness will eventually leave your house. <laughs> Jokes about liberal arts majors abound, some are even funny. Careful reflection, however, should cause us some concern as to why we enjoy such humor. In the same way, we might laugh at the absent. The subjects of study belonging to the liberal arts have been around for a long time, over 2,000 years, in fact, and like an old friend or a respected Relative who may be slipping a bit, before we allow ourselves too much innocent jocularity at their expense, we need to ask what they have meant to us and our well-being, even when we were not paying attention, as we should have. Twenty-five years ago, long before the recession of 07-08, wreaked havoc on higher education, David Brenneman, a professor of economics wrote a much-publicized article warning educators that liberal arts colleges are on the decline. He said in 1990 the liberal arts college as we know it is disappearing from the landscape and another type of institution, the professional college, is taking its place. Although at the time his argument faced many detractors, Professor Brenneman was one of the first to recognize a trend that has become commonplace. More recently, Victor E. Farrell, Jr., President Emeritus of Beloit College and the author of a a recent book, Liberal Arts at the Brink, he said Brenneman's argument has proven true and should be of great concern to those who value the liberal arts. He writes... The problem is not that some places that call themselves liberal arts colleges really aren't anymore, but rather that the number of Americans who see the great value a liberal arts education provides is dwindling. Yes, students and their parents still want degrees from prestigious liberal arts colleges, but fewer and fewer value the liberal arts education the colleges provide in today's market how is anyone going to get a job as an anthropologist or a historian let alone a philosopher or expert in 19th century english literature professor farrell also questions whether liberal arts colleges are paying enough attention to these trends. He notes, an increasing number of liberal arts colleges are attempting to answer this question by presenting themselves as vocational or by arguing that studying anthropology will actually lead to a good job, rather than by showing how the liberal arts curriculum as a whole leads to questioning, analytical critical thinking that stands recipients in good stead wherever their lives may lead, And on whatever career path they follow, the liberal arts wing of the academy needs to get busy making the case for the education they provide before it is too late. I take seriously Dr. Farrell's urging that we liberal arts professors need to get busy making our case. Yet I also take seriously the fact that the case has become more difficult to make. One reason the case for the liberal arts has become more difficult has been stated, economic necessity. One must eat to live. And before one spends upwards of over $100,000 investing in a higher degree, one must calculate the risk and the return on such an investment. This is a blunt market reality in all of us. Even the most liberal of liberal artists have to reckon with the fact of material interest And necessity. There is also another reality that is more difficult to accept. The truth is the liberal arts are not suffering simply because of economic realities or vocational professionalization or global expansive corporatism. These external pressures are no doubt very significant. But there are other factors at work producing the so-called death of the liberal arts. And these factors are more internal than external. They are more in the family, so to speak. And as such, they are much more ominous. In 1987, three years before David Brenneman's landmark article appeared, Alan Bloom a prominent philosopher and classicist from the University of Chicago, published a controversial and hotly debated work titled The Closing of the American Mind. In this work, Bloom argued that modern universities and particularly liberal arts curriculums were failing students because liberal arts professors were rejecting and had long been rejecting the moral purposes of education that historically had given the liberal arts a meaningful objective. Bloom lamented a languid relativism, a seemingly unassailable new academic orthodoxy shared by students and professors alike had slowly infected the humanities. This new orthodoxy rejected a long-standing liberal arts commitment to identify and communicate universal values shared across people groups by virtue of our humanity, and in its place posited a new purpose for liberal learning. The new liberal learning Bloom spoke of asserted that we study works from the past, literature, history, philosophy, religion, not so much for what they can teach us about human nature and human purpose and human ends, but as artifacts of curiosity subject to scrutinizing, unveiling, and deconstructing according to the power and privilege that informed them. The new liberal arts proceed with indifference to the possibility of enduring values informing human activity, cultural development, and political community, and advance instead a tepid relativism. This emerging curricular trend is in fact far more censorious and crucial matters than the one it strives to replace. It discourages the possibility that there are real and inherent distinctions between people and ideas and cultures and civilizations. All distinctions of value are instead culturally constructed and therefore malleable and changeable. The business of the liberal arts professor and student is to identify the privileged power at work to deconstruct it and to replace distinction according to a hierarchy of goods and values with broad, ill-defined claims of fairness, equality, and justice, regardless of what these terms might actually mean as of a piece with inherited cultural literacy. Students, in turn, are encouraged to believe that in crucial respects, civilization, and in particular, almost always Western civilization, is an arbitrary ideological expedient, rather than a repository of substantive moral wisdom. Moreover, students are encouraged to accept that the purpose of education is not to appropriate and transmit time-tested values, but to question them, and if possible, to replace them with multi-perspectival approaches to human meaning that make no distinction between the cacophony of competing ideas which they, the students, find themselves surrounded. This fragmentation creates both specialized languages and codes of behavior that render a confusion of purpose in university life. Professors who are supposed to model critical thought are conditioned to protect esoteric language and customs that give their slice of academia significance. And this conditioning repeatedly results not only in maintaining, but passionately defending the status quo. At almost every university in America, you will hear the same vocabulary and arguments being used in more or less identical ways. Unfortunately, the pattern in the professorate trickles down to you, the students. Too often, professors want to create students in their own image. Sometimes ambitious students respond by trying to break the code of the professor. What is the correct language I should employ in this presentation? How do I demonstrate my grasp of the right theories? Have I been sufficiently cynical or skeptical about the same thing as my professor? Other students, unfortunately, do not even bother to try. If my values and concerns are out of bounds in an academic discourse, then who cares? Just give me the grade and let me go. If Alan Bloom was correct in 1987, one can only wonder how to evaluate the state of the liberal arts in 2015. Even more, one cannot help but sympathize with hard working families maybe like yours who send their children to college hoping for not only a better livelihood but also a more meaningful way of living only to discover that the values they taught their children have been unmasked that they carry no deeper meaning than the power they serve to perpetuate the liberal arts instead of transmitting a culture of shared values leaves the student after four years of intellectual dissipation with the view that anything goes and not much matters. A four-year rite of passage into cultural fragmentation leaves only one remaining goal of liberal learning, abstract egalitarianism severed from any and all normative truth claims In place of the old beliefs that once sustained the best of a civilization, new beliefs are delimited entirely to equality and inclusion. The most dangerous thing you can do as an educated person is the very thing that gave passion and purpose to liberal learning. Render a meaningful value judgment about anything. Thus far, I have done an absolutely terrible job of defending the liberal arts and explaining why they might be worth your time. Understandably so. Both external economic and market forces as described by Brenneman and Farrell, as well as internal incoherency as described by Bloom have done much damage to the purposes of a liberal education. Still, I am an acolyte, and I believe that the liberal arts serve not only a but the most important purpose in a university's curriculum. Why? How can I make such an assertion given the external pressure and internal myopia i just described? One of the earliest questions asked by Western philosophy is the relationship between being and becoming. This is a complicated question with much history behind it. Put simply, very simply, the question of being and becoming is a way of framing and explaining the relationship between those things in our life that are fixed, permanent, and true, and those things that are mutable, impermanent, and subject to flux and change. All of us, every single one of us, carries with us the marks of both being and becoming by virtue of the fact we are human. As humans, we long to know and understand first principles that provide emotional and intellectual stability and give order to our lives. But also as humans, we are subject to constant change that makes us something different from what we were just a moment before. Historically, one of the most important tasks of a liberal arts education was to convey categories of meaning. That helped one to navigate the tension between being and becoming, between what you are and what you can be or are supposed to be, between what we are by nature and what we are as subjects of time and place. Put another way, liberal learning helped one to both know who they are in their humanity and how they are to function in that humanity to reach their proper end, to be human and to become more fully humane. Students entering college are rightly concerned with how to make a living, but I would also urge that students today, like students of every generation, also want to know how to live a good life. That is, most students, like most humans in their best moments, want to know who they are and what they are supposed to become to reach their potential as rational creatures. The two things are related, and a complete education should prepare them for both. Liberal education is concerned not so much with the acquisition of technical skills or job training, but with learning how to live well how to function as a moral agent in a world of competing values. The work of C.S. Lewis is helpful here. Lewis contrasts liberal arts education with what he calls vocational training. Vocational training prepares one for employment. Such training, writes Lewis, aims at making not a good person, but a good banker, a good electrician, or a good surgeon. This is very important, training. For we cannot live or do well without well-trained bankers, electricians, and surgeons. Think about it. But the danger, as Lewis sees it, is the pursuit of vocational training at the expense of educating for civilization. If education is beaten by training, civilization dies, says Lewis. For the lesson of history is that civilization is a rarity attained with difficulty and easily lost. Attainment of humanity capable of civilization is one of the most important goals of liberal learning. Likewise, attaining a humanity capable of civilization means acquiring a purposeful sense of what it means to be in the world and at the same time and while at the same time, we in the world around us are always becoming something else. This means for at least some, education should be more than simply vocational. It should be value-laden, and it should correct and refine those modes of thought that allow for proper judgments of what is better from what is worse to discern the good, the true, and the beautiful from the bad, the false, and the revolting. Here, however, we must be very careful for platitudes will not suffice to clarify why the liberal arts matter. Simply reading a lot of books or mastering a dead language or being conversant with history and philosophy and religious traditions is not quite enough. To have all of these things is in a sense to be to exist, but it is not necessarily to be well or exist well or to become better. A memoir Winston Churchill wrote in the autumn of 1942 gets at this problem another way. In the midst of World War, information was smuggled out of Nazi Germany through Switzerland, revealing to the outside world the extent of the German slaughter of Jews on the Eastern Front, the murder by gas of Polish Jews in three special death camps, Chelmno, Belzec, and Treblinka, and of the deportation of the Jews from France, Belgium, and Holland to a, quote, unknown destination in the East. Two years later, this unknown destination was identified to Churchill as Auschwitz where Jews were being gassed at the rate of about 12,000 men, women, and children a day. As Churchill wrote at the time, this was, quote, probably the greatest and most horrible crime ever committed in the whole history of the world. And it has been done by scientific machinery, by nominally civilized men, end quote. The German people were the most techni- technically advanced, one might say, most highly educated people in the world at the time. Doctors, nurses, psychologists, educators, scientists, engineers, accountants, lawyers, and the whole array of other nominally civilized men and women, devoting their considerable skills, acquired at great effort and expense to the extermination of a people 20th century the most technologically advanced century in the history of the world until our present century with more technically skilled people per square mile than one could have once imagined will be remembered as a century in which totalitarianism and genocide emerged from the heart of Europe all in the name of order and progress yet resulting in a new phenomenon state sponsored scientific technical bureaucratic savagery no the liberal arts must mean a great deal more than reading a lot of books it must at some fundamental level mean reading books and discussing ideas toward certain ends it must mean that being can become ordered toward goods and purposes that are capable of discernment and moral reflection. In other words, it must be knowledge that shapes our humanity in light of eternal verities not subject to the brutal cunning of history. The Latin for liberal arts, the artes liberalis, literally translates the arts of freedom. To be free is to not be beholden to another. To be liberally educated is to be free to think for oneself. Before we can cultivate the art or skill of freedom to think for ourselves, certain preconditions must be met. It is best not to be at war or to be starving or to be lacking a home. Our word economics comes from the Greek oikonomike, oikonomike, or household management. This is the name given to the general art of acquiring necessary material goods for living, food, clothing, shelter, etc. Successfully meeting our basic material needs are a precondition for the flourishing of the art of freedom to think for ourselves. Economic life, however, is compulsory, whereas the liberal or free life of thought is not. Unlike compulsory art, of meeting meeting necessity. The liberal arts are not forced upon us by need, but are chosen for the sake of a good life. They are arts not for the acquisition of necessary things, but for the use of worthy or valuable things that should be emphasized over other things. For this reason, the liberal arts were historically distinguished from the manual or mechanical arts. That is, they are not merely instrumental, but are in some respect an end in, in of themselves. They are, as Aristotle would say, the leisure arts. Note that our words for school, and for scholar, and scholarship, are derived from the Greek word skole, which means leisure, and that schools are places where scholars learn to make the best use of their skole. Or leisure, or freedom. The idea here is that the liberal arts teach the skills necessary for regulating freedom. Skill or techne in the Greek does not occur by chance, it is cultivated. There is a conscientious human purpose, design, and method to any skill or art. This involves rigor and precision and it is not accidental that the various liberal arts are traditionally called disciplines. This suggests that leisure, properly speaking, is not mere idleness and that freedom is not random meandering or arbitrary willfulness. The liberal arts are the leisure disciplines, the disciplines of freedom. They prepare us to be deserving stewards of liberty The liberal excuse me the liberal arts have to do with that element of our being in which our freedom most essentially resides namely our mind and our soul as opposed to what is subject to physical compulsion our bodies and the first task of the liberal arts is to secure is to secure the liberation of the mind from those many fetters that can bind it notably ignorance prejudice and the influence of the passions. In and through this essential freedom, the freedom of the mind, our humanity is revealed. This is the integrative principle of the liberal arts, the humanitas, which gives us our word for the humanities. This unifying idea for some 2,000 years has been asked in the form of a vital question, the central animating question of the liberal arts tradition. What does it mean to be, and what am I supposed to become? Greeks and Romans, Neoplatonists and Stoics, Rationalists, Roman Catholics, Renaissance Humanists, and Protestant Christians have all in one variety or another asked this question. In the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism from the 17th century, words that would be as familiar and understandable to Aristotle in the 4th century B.C. as Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century A.D., what is the chief? and highest end of man. The term term liberal education is inseparable from the purposes of a free society. Both originate out of the ancient notion that people should first learn to rule themselves before they dare lead or command others. In this sense, freedom or liberal does not refer to the capacity to do whatever we want, no matter what we want, Rather, it is an inner disposition shaped by acquired habits forged through the trials and triumphs of generational wisdom and learning. The ancients well understood the dilemmas and the volatility surrounding this question of freedom, civilization, and liberal learning. They determined that in order to have a civilization, one must first have civility, And civility belonged to a larger conceptual framework of virtue, specifically the virtue of moderation tempered through education. If people are going to be at peace with themselves and with others, they must learn to moderate their passions. The Greeks in particular recognized that passion could be disruptive for both public and private life. In 431 B.C., Athenian commercial interest and Spartan military interest collided in a violent contest that spanned a quarter of a century. Thucydides tells us that a year before the fighting began, as hostilities mounted, Archidamus, king of Sparta, counseled moderation. Archidamus knew Spartans built their international reputation on war and rumors of war. But he also knew that Spartan toughness and aggression had more often than not been tempered by prudence and caution. He admonished that Sparta owed its success at warfare to prudent respect for enemies, that, quote, through our orderliness, we are rendered both warlike and wise. He further urged that anger toward Athens should not overwhelm the practice of prudence and moderation handed down by Sparta's ancestors, Let us not be hurried into deciding in the brief space of a day about many lives, possessions, cities, and reputations. Let us decide calmly. A generation after the Peloponnesian War, Aristotle offered a more sophisticated development of Archidamus's point. In Book 2 of his Nicomachean Ethics, he writes, Moral virtue is a mean between two vices, one involving excess, the other deficiency. Its character is to aim at what is intermediate intermediate into passions and actions. Without moderation, argued Aristotle, a person is liable to become a slave. Not a free person, but a slave to passion. And to be controlled by passion is to be, be unable to undertake right action or behavior. And to be controlled by those activities that distort us rather than refine us. People are capable of moderation and thus civility because they possess a rational principle and the function of a human is an activity of the soul which follows or implies this rational principle. Aristotle's appeal to the possibility of moderation is of a piece with his larger conceptual framework of human nature and human happiness. All human activity argues aims at some good, some arete, which is to say that all human activity strives towards strives toward some type of excellence. The problem is that there are so many goods which people may pursue, and choices are necessary. Some pursuits are simply more worthwhile than others. The virtuous life, the educated life, however, is the pursuit and attainment of the highest good, and Aristotle calls this eudaimonia, ...frequently translated as happiness. This is not happiness as pleasure. Rather, it is happiness or better fulfillment... ...that results from contemplating how one ought to live one's life... ...than moving from contemplation to exemplary action. Through concepts such as Arete and eudaimonia, ...Aristotle gave expression to the possibility of, of virtue as human activity... Moderation of the passions is good human activity that directs human nature to its proper telos, its proper end or purpose. According, civility, shaped by education, shaped by the liberal arts, is a type of self-moderation that leads to virtuous public behavior. Civility is a habit of excellence that allows one to rationally and virtuously engage in public discourse. Aristotle's argument relies on the belief that although difficult reason cultivated by education and habit will lead civilized people to their proper end. When reason and education fail to cultivate civility and in turn a civilization and in turn a civilization, all that is left to maintain the public good is coercion and law. Law provides the rules, coercion enforces them. Although law and coercion are necessary for Aristotle, they are poor substitutes for the well-trained soul that seeks moderation in all things. We can teach ourselves to be free, or we can be forced to obey. Through the long history of the Middle Ages, the Christian tradition provided theological explanations as to why not everyone successfully uses reason to cultivate Educated moderation. Slowly, the Aristotelian understanding of civility and liberal learning as moderation found new expression in the Christian idiom. The idea that humans have a nature, a purpose, an ultimate good, and social responsibilities retained, but they were modified. They were modified specifically at the hands of the church. Augustine, in the late fourth and early fifth centuries AD, relying on Plato and the Apostle Paul much more than Aristotle, suggested that bad behavior is not so much deficiency as it is depravity. Incivility and illiberal education for Aristotle it meant failure to be virtuous. For Augustine, incivility and the absence of self control. Was part of a larger complex of biblical concepts that included sin, evil, the will, and redemption. Before human reason could be used as a positive good in controlling the passions, it had to be reoriented to God by God. Because reason suffered from the taint of sin and self will, it would always stumble on the path to virtue, hence, civility, civilization, were indeed the result of a well-trained soul, but the soul was first trained by God's law and then God's grace. Cupiditas, or wrongly ordered desire, had to be transformed to or grace, rightly ordered desire. Human behavior was us oriented not only to the city of man, but the city of God as well through God's mercy and then only as a shadow of heaven are civility and ordered freedom possible the great tradition of the Greek, the great tradition of the early Christian, and then Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas inherited the intellectual traditions of both Aristotle and Augustine, and in effect, he masterfully synthesized both. With Augustine, he recognized the problem of sin and the need for redemption, and with Aristotle, he had a high view of the human rational principle and the inevitable need for community. For Aquinas' reason, and revelation complemented one another as positive expressions of God's creation and God's redemption. Aquinas held that only God could directly command and rightly order the soul, but this did not mean that reason was violated, nor did it mean reason was helpless in cultivating virtue. God's law and human reason work together. Civility, self-mastery, ordered freedom, and civilization are reasonable goods brought about through the moderation of the passions. But these are reasonable because God made them so. Civilization is more than human law, more than coercion. It includes the possibility of educated virtue. What is important to notice about both the classical tradition and the Christian tradition and also early versions of Protestantism is that the prospect of civility, self-rule, freedom, and civilization are always related to how we define human nature, human purpose, and moral relationships. They are always oriented to the question of being and becoming. Whether in the language of Athens or the language of Zion, the idea remains there is an ultimate good and that humans through reason, faith, or both may participate in that good. A sense of purposefulness or final ends is retained and objective standards of what constitutes the fulfillment of human purpose find both ethical and metaphysical justification. Human behavior is part of a larger moral scheme, and educating for civilization is important because morality is important. The philosophical turn of late modernity and what is sometimes called postmodernity altered this classical and Christian understanding of moral ends, and in turn, altered the meaning of freedom, civilization, and liberal learning. The breakdown of medieval Catholicism, the rise of science as an arbiter of truth, successive religious wars, the abandonment of aristocracy, and the growth of capitalism gave birth to a new European and American order. Over time, aspects of this new condition, including improvements in medicine, sanitation, safety, social mobility, and education greatly improved the lives of millions of people. But these slow and sometimes subtle social changes accompanied equally slow and subtle changes in the purposes of the liberal arts. With the advent of modernity, questions concerning human nature and human purpose became increasingly contentious. Modern philosophy strove for objectivity, and this quest narrowed the kinds of questions asked and answers given about moral behavior. Questions of purpose and value fell outside new boundaries of what can be observed, ordered, and explained. As a result, asking what something is, how it works, and how it can be controlled became more important than asking why something is and what it is meant to be. These latter questions came to belong more and more to the realm of speculation, not fact. Whereas ancient philosophy and the Christian tradition viewed definitions of human nature and human ends as absolutely necessary for achieving and maintaining civilization, moderns came to see them as abstractions based on excessive conjecture. Consequently, the moral framework constructed by the ancients and elaborated by the church sputtered and gradually faded higher education what you are doing has adjusted accordingly to modernity and eventually postmodernity. and this adjustment has lingering consequences for the debate over liberal learning in the 21st century moral responsibility and freedom are today framed almost exclusively in terms of interest and personal preference Private construction of the idea of the self without reference to society, tradition, or even reason supplanted the hope of objective universal truth. Private interest and individual choice slowly replaced what used to be at least an attempt at at consensus about the good and the virtuous. As a result, one person's private conviction... About the nature of truth, competes in the marketplace of opinion with other people's private convictions. The consequences for civility and ordered freedom have been harsh. Moderation is expendable. The tradition of the liberal arts is, in a decisive respect, the Western tradition that I just outlined. And the fate of the liberal arts will be inseparable from the fate of the west more than ever it is the Christian university that is positioned to inaugurate a revival of the liberal arts and in turn a quickening of the vital questions of being and becoming the questions of the ends or purpose of human existence and moral order today there is an intense interest almost an obsession in div- with diversity and pluralism Within the worlds of higher education, a Christian university committed to the liberal arts tradition serves the great good of diversity and pluralism by self-consciously choosing to be a different kind of university. It does not mimic the false pluralism and diversity that pretends our deepest differences make no difference. Rather, it engages within the bond of civility the differences that make the deepest difference. The Christian university is a profoundly humanistic university that embraces far beyond what are called the humanities. All aspects of being and becoming and liberal learning can reach substantive matur- maturity at a thoughtful Christian university. No humanism is so radical as the humanism premised on the truth that God became a human being to perfect and prepare other human beings made in his image for eternity with him. This does not mean that everybody will agree on the meaning of these transcendent realities. On the contrary. But the Christian university nurtures the potential for thoughtful and respectful disagreement without disregarding either first principles or ultimate ends. The God who gave us reason and who keeps faith with the order of his creation requires us to respect the integrity of every way of knowing. Different subjects and different disciplines have their own integrity. It is neither possible nor desirable to teach Christian mathematics or Christian geography or Christian chemistry. But a Christian university should not lose sight of the truth that these and other disciplines have their own integrity because they are an integral part of the created order the creator's order. A Christian university should not lose sight of the fact that it and it alone may be the last garrison of the 21st century capable of meaningfully exploring the ancient tension between being and becoming and directing that tension toward just, purposeful, and eternal truths. So why are the liberal arts worth your time? You are human. You are framed by mortality. In the scope of history, you have unprecedented freedoms. And you must decide between better ideas and worse ideas if you wish to remain free and live well. I close with a quote for your consideration from Martin Luther King Jr. when he was a senior at Morehouse College. He wrote an editorial for the student paper, 1947. We must remember that intelligence is not enough. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. The complete education gives one not only power of concentration, but worthy objectives upon which to concentrate. The broad education will therefore transmit to one not only the accumulated knowledge of the race, but also the accumulated experience of social living. If we are not careful, our colleges will produce a group of closed-minded, unscientific, illogical propagandists consumed with immoral acts. Be careful, brethren. Be careful, teachers. Thank you. No. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take a question if you have one. Yes, I do. Um, I I think it is um, it, it is going. It's increasingly more difficult, but I do think it's possible. And uh, but I think that window is narrowing, and the future is going to belong to schools that are, uh, frankly, willing to take um, positions that um, might offend the public interest. Or public trust, and in that regard, where public universities and, frankly, a lot of private universities, are not the best places to shape the kind of discourses I just described. They take enormous amounts of federal money, and when you take enormous amounts of federal money, which you have to, you have to play by the rules, and uh, that the, the rules can be moved, the goalposts can be moved, uh, so it makes the public trust and the public. Uh, Usage of the university much more difficult in terms of these kind of moral equations. I'm talking about and it makes technical training much more uh, safe Everybody got it Thank you (laughs)